Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 15 this morning. Acts chapter 15. We're going to consider this morning a message entitled, Grace Changes Everything. Stand with me once you're there. We're going to look at this passage. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, this passage that we have before us, as it relates to your grace, salvation, and the law. And we know, Lord, uh, that many of us in this room, in some way, shape, or form, struggle with your grace. Just to accept that you've done it all. There's nothing we can contribute. It wasn't just a first century problem. It's a 21st century problem as well. So we ask you, Lord, to speak to us. And Lord, release any kind of bondage we might have relating to the law keeping. And we would understand grace this morning in a new and a fresh way. For some of us, just remind us of all that you've done for us, Lord. And that we would be filled with joy. You would uh, just have your way. So we just lift this Bible study up to you. We ask you to just lead us now by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The late Charles Stanley once said, God's grace is an essential concept for believers to understand. He freely offers his favor to mankind because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross purchased forgiveness and salvation for anyone who believes. Understanding grace is vital to the Christian faith because it's by grace that we're saved and it's by grace that we're called to live. Grace is God's help for broken people. It's the unmerited favor of God, the undeserved goodness of God towards sinners. Perhaps you're familiar with the acronym grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Isn't that wonderful? God's riches at Christ's expense. That's exactly what grace is. Jesus Christ became your substitutionary atonement, folks. He took your place on the cross. He drank the cup of wrath on your behalf. And if you, by faith, will believe in him and his works on the cross, then you will be saved, the Bible tells us. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it's, a, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's God's grace. It's by grace, through faith, in the Son of God, 
that you are saved. What's interesting about that passage is, in the very beginning, it talks about the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God that extends the grace of God. God is merciful, and thus he gives us grace. And notice that it said that he did that before we were even reconciled to him. What you need to understand about God's grace is it doesn't just apply to us when we're trying to do the right things. And in fact, God's grace is the exact opposite. It applies to us in the very uh, the, the worst that we could ever possibly be in, the darkest places of our life, that's when God's grace comes. He came in that place for you. He came in the darkest moments of your life. He didn't say, well, God was being merciful when you were trying to do the right things. No, it has nothing to do with that. In fact, God said, while you were at your worst, I sent my son. Listen, if you don't feel love this morning, just meditate on that for a second, that God loved you at your absolute worst. And in fact, God loves you the exact same at your absolute best. That's the grace of God. He loves us and thus he gives us what we don't deserve. Eternal life through Jesus Christ. All because of Jesus. I love that song. Grace, what have you done? You murdered for me on the cross. Oh boy, that, the, the, the lyrics of that song. And the chorus would go on to say, it's all because of you, Jesus. It's all because of you. Do you know Jesus actually is the grace of God manifest? He is full of grace, the Bible says. John says this in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, this, is, this was he of whom I said, he, was, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For, listen, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus, or they came through Jesus Christ, past tense. It came for you. He came for you. He is the manifest grace of God. God sent his son to give you grace upon grace. Like you can't, you can't outdo God's grace for you. He has more grace than you know what to do with folks. And so we should just rest in that grace and we should settle in on that grace. Uh, because without his grace, folks, we are up a creek without a paddle, if you know what I mean. We're in big trouble Without God's grace, we're sinking ships. There's no hope of us being rescued. Without God's grace, what exactly are we left with? We're left with the law. We're left with the law. The problem with that is the law has no capacity to save. Has no ability to reconcile you to a holy God. All it can tell you is that you have fallen short. That's what the law's purpose is. But what we need to understand is God sent his son, Jesus, he is the grace of God, by faith in the son of God, uh, that we can remove the condemnation that the law brings. If you've never memorized Romans chapter 8 verse 1, you should. It's such a refreshing uh, verse for us. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ 
Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the, uh, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and, and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Hey, Jesus came not to remove the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And this tells us because Jesus has fulfilled the law, then his righteousness transfers to us. We get to stand perfect before a holy God because of his son. He's done it all for us. Now, it's interesting that Paul would go on to tell us that we don't walk according to the flesh anymore. Uh, when, we're, when we've received the grace of God, when we come by grace through faith in Christ alone, what happens is we change. Our life is changed and transformed. We're different people. You know, we talk about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. The last part of that verse says, we're called to walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anybody's in Christ, he's what? A new creation. This speaks about a, a heart change from the inside out. God has reached down. But here's the reality. No matter how much you've changed, no matter how well you're walking, it still will not get you to heaven. We're reliant on Christ from the moment we're born until the moment we take our last breath, folks. He is the righteous requirement of the law. Jesus, his life transferred onto you because of the cross because of the resurrection. This is the grace of God. And we should, we should never move away from that understanding, folks. And in fact, when we talk about the deeper things of God, what I suggest to you is go deeper in his grace. Try and understand his grace a little bit more. You'll never come to the end of it. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I'm speaking in lyrics today. Praise God for that. Listen, Grace is an essential concept for us to understand because the entirety of Christianity is based on it. The entirety of Christianity, this is God telling us how he is interacting with us in this fallen world. And he says, I'm a God of mercy and I'm a God who extends grace to anyone who desires it because he loves us. And he wants to be reconciled to us. He's done all the work for us. All we have to do is yield to him. But that's the problem. Because we want to help. We want, we want to make a way. And, and actually, if you really boil it all down, it comes back to because we're prideful. Because we want to contribute to, uh, to you know, our salvation in some way, shape, or form. And the Lord says, you can't do it. You can't do it. Grace is a concept many people struggle with. Now imagine you growing up in the first century and you're, you're a Jew and you've lived your whole life according to the 613 commandments, 248 uh, positive commandments, thou shalt, and 365 thou shall nots, negative commandments. That's one for every day. You could apply, thou shall not do this, thou shall not do that. And you begin to live your life based on a list. How am I doing today? Oh man, so, number 455, I messed it up. And your whole life is wrapped around a list of do's and don'ts and meticulously trying to do all the right things. 
That was the Jew of Jesus' day when he came. You realize that wasn't really the old covenant, right? That really wasn't God's intention for the old covenant. But man has a problem with just letting God do the work. And so what they did was they took the old covenant and then the, the you know, back actually when the Jews came back from, this is, I didn't even give first services. You guys are getting extra. So here's the thing is back when the Babylonians took captivity and they came out of the Babylonian captivity back into Israel, the Jews set up all these rules that were beyond the law, actually, because they, they said, look, we don't want to even ever experience that again. And so they set up all these laws that were beyond the, the, what God had even told them anyway because they didn't even want to get close to the line. And guess what? Man's law became greater than God's law. And that's the, that's the religious system that Jesus stepped into when he came. The religious leaders thinking that they were super great, you know, and, and all the other people looking around going, man, I could never be like that, not really understanding or comprehending that they are, um, they have fallen short just like everybody else. God's intentions for the old covenant were, were not that they, that a person would get to him through works. It was always by grace through faith in Christ or in, in the Lamb, in the sacrifice, in the temple sacrifices, you would put your faith in the sacrifice as a substitute for you. And it was always pointing us to Jesus. From day one, if you look at all of the rituals in the old covenant, they all point you to Jesus. It's so fascinating. But you're growing up with this mentality and then along comes somebody that says, hey, man, what are you doing walking around with that list? You don't have to do that anymore. Hey, Jesus paid the price for you. He, he set us free from the law in that way. You don't have to keep the law so meticulously. You just yield to Christ and you walk in love. Hello, that's a little bit of a problem. That's gonna take some time to work out. Uh, you know. And so that's where they are. You gotta understand in first century Christianity, God is undoing a lot of stuff while he's doing stuff at the same time. He's confronting cultural barriers that have been in place for hundreds of years that should have never been put in there in the first place. We saw how the Lord dealt with Peter, and we'll talk about this in a moment, in Acts chapter 10 relating to the cultural barrier of the Gentiles and how they had, the Jews had figured they were just, you know, firewood for hell. That's what the, that was their understanding. That was never God's intention. So you're a first century Christian coming out of Judaism and you're thinking like, Man, how do I apply the law in my life? What am I, how do I, am I supposed to live my life? And you just got to allow the grace of God to wash over you. And it's a concept of grace that they're struggling with. This is Acts chapter 15. This is what happens. The church has been going for, you know, some years now. And, and you know, the gospel's going forward. It's already made its way to Galatia, outside of the, that whole region. You know, God is pushing the, the gospel of grace forward. And the enemy now steps in and goes, well, if I can't get them to not believe in Jesus, I'm going to pervert the understanding of Jesus. That's how the enemy works. He'll figure out a way to pervert whatever God is doing. And in this case, what he's going to do is say, hey, of course God didn't mean you shouldn't keep the law. Now we're going to bring in what's called a Jesus plus gospel. 
a Jesus plus gospel. In this particular case, it's Jesus plus circumcision. And we'll find when, when they go to Jerusalem that it's also keeping the law of Moses. And they're, they're not understanding grace. The, the enemy is now going to confront this culture that has been walking in grace with the law. And now they're going to be faced with how do we interact with these things. You know, that's not just a first century problem. Like I said, it's a 21st century problem too. We have, cult, we have different cults who teach a works-based salvation, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons. Uh, we have even those in the Christian realm, Catholicism, Church of Christ, who teach a Jesus plus gospel folks. It's a Jesus plus something you have to do, whether it's Jesus plus confirmation or it's Jesus plus baptism or it's Jesus plus continual repentance. You have to do something in order to maintain your salvation. That is not the gospel of the Bible. And in fact, a Jesus plus gospel is no gospel at all. That's not good news. Hey, if my salvation is based on me, I'm already sunk because I'm going to mess it up. And so that's what's going on here in the background of Acts chapter 15. Grace is being challenged. Hey, let's return to the law. Let's get back to doing these things. And in fact, let's make, let's make Gentiles become Jews. That's ultimately what the whole concept of this passage is. Acts chapter 15 in these 35 verses. Now I've divided these up into four sections. The first we see is the dispute regarding grace. We read the first verse, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debated with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So again, so these guys come, they come down from Judea. Remember, uh, Jerusalem is elevated. That's why anytime you're leaving Jerusalem in, in Israel, they say you're going down. In this case, they're going, they're descending to go north uh, uh, up to Antioch of Syria where Paul and Barnabas are. We left off Acts chapter uh, 14, uh, verses 27 and 28, where they came back from Galatia and they, were, they had gathered the church together and they were praising God for all the things that he had done. That's where we lead off. And, and ultimately, now these guys show up. They say they're from James, from Jerusalem, and that they have come to let them know that, that uh, these guys must become these, these guys must be uh, circumcised in order to be saved. And you know what the problem with that is? That's a different message than Paul and Barnabas have been teaching. You can imagine when they're like, hey, some brothers from Judea are here. And they're like, oh, great. Hey, guys, what's going on? What do you, hey, you know, uh, you, know you got to be circumcised to be saved. And, and Paul, who was a, a Pharisee himself, was probably like, wait, what? Circumcised to be saved? Hold on a second. And look at their reaction. It tells us that they, there was, this was not a small thing to them. No small dissension or debate. They, they literally begin to fight fiercely for the gospel of grace, as they should. Listen, every Christian has a responsibility to fight fiercely for the gospel of grace. To maintain and preserve the gospel of grace. 
Paul says that we've been entrusted with it. Listen to what he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. But just as we, speaking he and the brothers there, have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. There is a time and there is a place and there is a hill that we're called to die on as believers. And that hill relates to the gospel of grace. Listen, we do not cower to a message that contradicts the gospel of grace. Why? Because it keeps people from going to heaven. That's why. And for centuries, these, uh, the believers through the corridor of history have been standing firm and fighting fiercely for the gospel of grace. You guys remember the Reformation, don't you? Martin Luther struggled big time with this concept of salvation by works. And in fact, he has a breakthrough with God because he's, he's, so, he's so agonizing inside thinking, I have to do all these things in order to be saved, but it doesn't sound right. And, he, and he's studying to be a, a priest and all of that stuff. And he's reading the word and the word doesn't say that. And so he says, hold on a second. The word doesn't say that. And he has, you know, just a sort of a, a, a Damascus road experience just like the apostle Paul did. And he gets saved and he understands that the gospel is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And John Calvin goes on to push the Reformation forward. Hey, we're standing in freedom today as a result of that, folks, because people are willing to fight fiercely for the gospel of grace. Now, I want to tell you something. There's many, many, many hills, many, many conversations in Christianity relating to uh, some near and dear doctrines to our heart that we ought not fight about or divide over. These are what are called the non-essentials. Listen, I, I mean, there are a gazillion different views of the rapture, three in, in particular that I know of, but there's probably more. And, and here's what I know. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, that's not a doctrine that we should divide over. Why? Because it doesn't keep you out of heaven. Listen, even though pre-trib's the right way, we don't get wrong with people. I mean, we just, no, I'm just kidding. Um, did I, wait, wait a second. Did I just divide? I'm not trying to divide you. But seriously, we have to, we, we do have to understand this. We have to be careful. Paul says, don't get into foolish disputes about things. Listen, there comes a point in time, there's nothing wrong with discussions about things and there's nothing wrong with about but being passionate about what you believe and all of these kinds of things, but do not divide the body of Christ over these secondary issues. Be very careful about that. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, dude, I'm dying on that hill. I don't care, you know, what, what that means. I'm gonna stand firm because that will keep a person from heaven. If someone thinks that they can do something to contribute to their salvation and they haven't fully trusted in Jesus and made him Lord of their life, they're not going to heaven. And I don't want that responsibility. And I, I don't want to see people, you know, struggle and try and make their way to God because you can't do it. If there was another way, God would have told Jesus in the garden when he asked, Lord, is there any other way? There is no other way. It's the gospel of grace. Paul and Barnabas fight fiercely for the gospel of grace. And what ends up happening is, they, is the gathering there, the brothers and sisters in Christ in Antioch say, listen, Paul, we need you to go confirm uh, what you're, you, you know, the gospel of grace 
go to Jerusalem and let's confirm this. Hey, we live in a day and age where fake news is difficult to handle. Could you imagine in the first century? Hey, I came from James in Jerusalem and he told me to tell you this. He told me when I come into town, you're supposed to give me all your money and worship me. Now, thank God we have the Holy Spirit, but back in that day, could you imagine? That's, that's never been new, folks. The enemy's always been spreading deception and false lies, but you know what? The Spirit of God is moving. He's at work, and he reveals the truth. He's the revealer of all truth. And so they send uh, Paul and Barnabas up along the way, verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the uh, conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Isn't it, aren't you just full of joy when you start to hear what God is doing in people's lives, when you hear how God is changing and transforming people? Hey, you know, I don't know if you guys have heard the story about this Oliver Anthony guy. You know, and you've heard the, the, the song that he wrote and all this kind of stuff. It, it's not about the song, but do you know his backstory? Do you know the guy 30 days before that song actually went viral? He was in his truck ready to kill himself. Do you know he was struggling with drugs and alcohol? And somewhere, he, he, he had some exposure to church growing up, but he said, all I saw was hypocrites in church. There are plenty of them. But here's the thing, it pushed him away from the Lord, or at least that's the excuse that people use. And here's what happened. He grabbed his Bible, he started to read, and he got saved. And he got saved, and 30 days later, God gives him a platform do you know what he's doing with that platform? The guy's not just singing songs, folks. And in fact, every place that I've seen him, any, every interview, every live performance I've seen him, he breaks out the Bible and reads scripture. God is moving despite the church not doing her job. God is saving and transforming people like this. How encouraging is it to know that the Holy Spirit can interact with a guy in his truck when you have a son or a daughter that's wayward or you have somebody you love desperately and you're, you're wanting God to reach them, know this, that God is reaching people. And if that doesn't bring you, bring you great joy, then man, what in the world would? God is saving people. He's doing miraculous things. And Paul and Barnabas were just sharing the, the great things that God had done through them in uh, Galatia and such. And it says that the, the church was full of great joy when they heard it. Verse four, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to, to order them to keep the law of Moses. Notice what it says. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Again, the scenario I'm talking about, growing up Jewish, 613 commandments that you're trying to live by and all this kind of stuff. And, and these guys being the, supposed to be the, the experts of the law are now saved. We're not talking about non-Christians here. We're, we're talking about believers who were in the church first century in leadership at the council in Jerusalem who go, hold on a second, you do have to be circumcised and you do need to follow the law of Moses. And it's no surprise that they believe that. You know why? Because they're under construction just like you and I are. 
you know, we're under construction. God is taking our belief systems and he is changing and transforming them as we allow him to. The Lord doesn't let us sit in areas of, of error. You know, he's faithful to bring those things up. That's why it's so important that when we encounter something, a teaching or whatever, that contradicts something that we believe, that we take a look. What does the Bible say? Am I sure I believe the right thing? I'm pretty sure the Bible says that we're supposed to study to show ourselves approved. In other words, we're to examine ourselves. You know, we're to look at the word of God. You know why? Because when somebody tells you something and you believe it, it's really not yours. You, you've heard it and, you know, and, and such. But when you study the word of God and you come to understanding through your own journey with God, dude, it's yours. It's yours. And there's a concreteness to that. You're like, man, the Lord revealed this to me. I remember when I first got saved, I didn't believe in the Trinity. And it was because of my background. I didn't, my, my parents, my mom was a Jehovah Witness, grew up that way. I never was exposed to church much. But when I was in seventh grade, my mom became a Jehovah Witness. And so, you know, this whole concept of God, I believe in God, but I didn't know who he was. And you know what? He saved my life, regardless. But in the moment, what happened was, after I got saved, my life was changed and transformed, you know, I began to study the word of God. And it, and it wasn't like, and I think that's the reality when it comes to some of these things. If you have to have all this theology correct before you can come to Christ, then that's not really the gospel. I mean, how in the world does the thief on the cross get saved? You know, so here's the reality is, I was saved, I was changed and transformed, and I also had an openness at the same time to believe whatever God wanted to show me. I was totally open. So that, I think, is the caveat. I think when you surrender to Christ, you're saying, I don't care what I believe. I don't know what I believe. I don't know anything, but I know you're the God. I know you're the Lord, and I just trust you. And God will reveal himself over time, and he did. And I was, just began to read the Bible by myself. No, nobody discipling me, the Holy Spirit being my teacher. And guess what? I came to a passage of scripture that told me that Jesus was God and I was like, whoa. And no one will ever be able to take that away from me. It's mine and I will not believe anything else because I've studied the scriptures relating to this. I know what it says. Uh, so that's the idea. God is undoing some of this bondage that these legalistic people have in the leadership of even in the council. So this dispute went from Antioch of Syria all the way down to Jerusalem, and now God's exposing that there's some even within the midst of the council in Jerusalem that believe the same thing. And so this is watershed moment for the church, folks. This is a crucial what will they do here? How are they going to deal with this? This brings us to whenever you come to a place of, uh, you know, uh, dispute, it's you need to have healthy discussions relating to that. And that's what we find next, the discussion in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related, uh, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So they're considering this matter now. The councils gathered together. We don't know who all that involves. We know that uh, James is there. We'll see that in a second. Peter's there. And, they, and there's Pharisees in the crowd. And they're debating and they're trying to come to some conclusion about this matter. And, and Peter stands up in the midst of that. And Peter stands as a defender of the gospel of grace. I don't know what you believe about Peter if he's like one of those guys that, you know, um, he's one of those guys that just open mouth and insert foot kind of thing. But you know what, Peter? Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and God used him massively in this particular moment. It's interesting that Peter stands up and he, he talks about a firsthand experience that God gave him in Acts chapter 10. We went through it. Where the Lord, if God hadn't given Peter Acts chapter 10 in this moment, he would have been on the side of the Pharisees. He would have said, oh yeah, you absolutely do have to be circumcised. You absolutely do uh, need to follow the law because you're Gentiles. You have to convert to Judaism in order for this, uh, in order for you to truly be saved. Peter would have absolutely taken that stance. But because he had an experience, because the Lord had revealed this to him through a vision in Acts chapter 10 with the sheet, the unclean animals, and then the, then he goes to Cornelius' house and he puts all these things together and he says, oh, God is saying that there should be no barrier between Jews and Gentiles relating to the gospel because the gospel's for everybody. And so Peter stands up and he begins to tell his story about this. He said, listen, God knows people's hearts. God knows your heart, he knows my heart. He knows the Gentiles' heart. All I can tell you is when I was at Cornelius' house and the gospel went forward, the Holy Spirit fell on these people and they were saved. Just like you and I. It was by grace through faith. Nobody was circumcised. Nobody was following the law. It was a work of the Lord done through his son, Jesus Christ. And he goes, why in the world would we try and put on a yoke that we ourselves can't even bear? That's what the Pharisees do. And you can imagine the concern and his, his defense is so solid that it silences the room. And they begin to just listen to what Paul and Barnabas had to say relating to the signs and wonders that they had seen amongst the Gentiles as they were in Galatia and Phoenicia and Samaria and all the regions and Antioch. This brings us to the decision in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from uh, them a people for his name. Now, the James that was being spoken of here is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is old camel knees. He was called camel knees because he prayed so much. He had big calluses on his knees because he got on got before the Lord often. And he was also the leader of the Gentile, of the uh, Jewish church there in Jerusalem. He was the leader of the church. It wasn't Peter, it was James. And James, uh, now after Peter had stood up and he spoke, he says, we can't deny 
that God first visited the Gentiles uh, through Simon. Who's Simon? Simon's Peter, right? Why is he using Simon? Why don't you just say Peter? Because this is a Jewish issue and he's using his Jewish name. Simon is his Hebrew name. He said Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. He has a firsthand experience. You cannot deny uh, Peter's testimony about what God has done. Here's the interesting thing, though. is James is not going to make a decision based solely on experience. That would be foolish. Because our experiences sometimes are off. Even as real as they might be, sometimes our experiences are not fully the Lord. The enemy can work in that same realm through signs and wonders and experiences and all of these, these kinds of things. Here's what I know, that your experience will always match the word of God if it's God. It always will. And it's interesting that James, the head of the church here, now takes Peter's experience and he marries it with the word of God. Check this out, verse 15. And with these words of the prophets, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James quotes Amos chapter 9 verses 11 through 12. Now, the context of that Old Testament prophecy is speaking of a millennial kingdom. James, uh, Amos is talking about the millennial kingdom coming and how the Lord is going to rebuild his temple and all this kind of stuff. But James relates it to this phrase relating to, to Peter's experience and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. All the Gentiles. He doesn't say all the proselytes. All the proselytes other word, Uh, you know, those who have converted to Judaism, he didn't say that, he said Gentiles. The idea is that you don't have to convert to Judaism, Judaism in order to be saved, folks. You're saved as a Gentile and you remain a Gentile, but it's interesting that as a Gentile, we become grafted in, Paul says, into uh, the, the vine and, and so we, we, we become the same people. Paul said this in Romans chapter 11, verse 17. And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. You and I are married in. You don't have to be a Jew. That's what he's saying. You've been grafted in. The Gentiles are grafted into all of the prophecies relating to the Messiah, which are Jewish, you don't have to become Jewish to receive. Uh, you receive them by simply believing in Jesus and he grafts you in to the olive tree. Hey, where does the olive tree get its nutrients? From the roots. Who's the roots? Jesus. He's the root of David. He is the roots. He's the one that we soak it all up from. It's interesting to me that people want to return to the Hebrew roots movement. And they want to... Uh, begin to be law keepers and, and all of this kind of stuff. And I'm all for like celebrating the, um, you know, the, the, the festivals and all those kinds of things as a means of relating to it being a picture of Jesus. But if you think you're getting some favor by God by doing all these things, you've completely missed the point. 
That's, that would be an error. And that would be called legalism. And that would be called a Jesus plus gospel if they think that they can somehow, and I'm not saying Hebrew Roots believes that, but it definitely is legalistic. And I would just tell you, beware. You don't have to become Jewish. You're follow Jesus Christ. That's all you're called to do. And the Lord will show you the way. Um, you know, so uh, that James relates Peter's experience with the word of God and it confirms. Listen, the decision that's made is based on the word of God. Verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So it's interesting that the decision that James makes, it's a biblical decision because it's based on the word of God, but he says the Gentiles should not be brought under the law, but they should be mindful, listen to this, of their liberties in Christ. They should be mindful of their liberties of Christ and not cause Jewish people to stumble. I love how David Guzik commented relating to this, uh, this decision here. He said, these three commands had to do with the eating habits of Gentile Christians. Though they were not bound under the law of Moses, they were bound under the law of love. The law of love told them, don't unnecessarily antagonize your Jewish neighbors, both in and out of the church. Hey, listen, we're not lawless people. We don't follow the law of Moses. We, we, we surrender ourselves to the law of love, who is Jesus Christ. Jesus told us, hey, listen, if you love me, you're going to what? Keep my commandments. You're going to do what you want. You know, here's the thing is you don't have to even have a list when you love the Lord. He just begins to guide you by his spirit. He's written his law on your heart. And you're not following a checklist. You're doing things based on the fact that you love the Lord, not because you're trying to gain favor with them. You know, you know how when you're kids, you can tell the difference when your kids are, are doing something because they, they want to express their love for you versus they want to get something from you? You know, they're like, they're all hurried up. They're like, hey, dad, how you doing? You know, doing all this stuff. And you're like, what are you doing, man? He goes, oh, not much. And then like three hours later, like, hey, can I borrow the car? And you're like, yeah, no, no. no. Oh, is that what that was all? That, that, that's what that was. I got you. No, I'm just kidding. But then they just genuinely, you come home and the house is clean and everything. And you're like, whoa, what happened here? And they're like, oh, oh, you know, I just wanted to bless you. Huh? Are you sure? And they just are trying to show you, express their love for you, you know? That's the idea. That's why we do what we do in Christ, because we love the Lord. And we want to do these, uh, do what we do because we love the Lord, not because we have to, but because we get to. We get to be his representation. Um, so the idea of being careful with your meals as Gentiles, because Jews were, had a very heavy conscience relating to particularly Gentile meals because a lot of the food that the Gentiles would eat has been offer, offered to idols. There's been sexual morality involved in it. The way that they kill the animal, uh, you know, wasn't necessarily right. And they, they, they left blood in the meat. And that wasn't kosher. And so even believers in the church as Jewish people could struggle with this. 
And so what James is saying is just be careful. Be mindful of your weaker brother. It's interesting that Paul was in the crowd when that was brought out. And in fact, he would take the letter back to Antioch with the the delegates that are sent. And then Paul would apply this principle to the church of Corinth. And he would tell them in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, you can read it later, he would talk about being aware of the weaker brother, that you don't cause them to stumble. And in fact, he comes to the conclusion in verse 13, therefore, speaking to a Gentile church that is all about meat, sacrifice to idols and stuff, he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The principle here is don't, don't, do, don't put things before somebody that, that you're free to go ahead and have, but it's a stumbling block to them. Let me use an example like alcohol. You know, it's not a sin to drink alcohol. You can have a drink of alcohol. If you don't struggle with that and you can, you can do it, you know, you have a liberty to do that. There's freedom in Christ. As long as you don't get drunk, it's not sinful. You get drunk, you've stepped over the line. But when it comes to alcohol and somebody else in the picture, if you are sitting down at a mill and you have a glass of wine and that person that you're sitting across the the table from is an alcoholic and now you begin to stumble them because the temptation that you're putting before them, well, hey, I could just have a glass like you. What if they can't? And the next thing you know, You go home after your one glass of wine and they go directly to the liquor store and get bombed because the stumbling block was presented before them. Here's a practical word of advice relating to this. Listen, if you don't struggle with alcohol, great, but but if you invite people over your house and you don't know them, don't put it on the table. Get to know people. Make sure you understand who they are and that they don't stumble, you know. Of course they're not going to say, oh, no, I don't struggle with that. What are they going to do? Beware. That's what Paul's saying. Just be conscious of people. We all have, we all have weaknesses, right? And, we don't, we, and, and some of those, uh, I would hate to be the stumbler of a brother because of a freedom that I have in Christ that I exercise before somebody who is struggling with that. It's not worth it. To me, so that's the idea. That's what that's what James is saying to the Gentiles. Just be beware of of these brothers in the Lord. And so it, it tells us. Then they sent a delegation, verse twenty two. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them, and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas. Uh, leading men among the brothers with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seems good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them uh, to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. 
For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they went... So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So James, the leaders there in Jerusalem, they figure the best way to deal with this uh, Jesus plus, uh, you know, circumcision or following the law sort of message that's going forward that's supposed to be from them is to send delegates to Antioch with a letter that says, no, that's not correct. So it wasn't just enough to send Paul and Barnabas back, but they want to make sure that everybody understands that this is not the right message, that a Jesus plus gospel is not correct. And so they choose men. They choose uh, Judas, who uh, we don't know a whole bunch about. We know he's a prophet. It just said that. But we don't know much other than the fact that he had the characteristics of a person that the men in Jerusalem could lay their hands on and send out as representation for him, for them, that like, he could represent them well. And the same with Silas. We don't know much about Silas other than he becomes the traveling companion of Paul, you know, in his second missionary journey. But he also had the characteristics. He lived his life in such a way that the brothers in Jerusalem could lay their hands on and send them out and say, go represent us. Are you living your life like that? Like, do you have those kind of characteristics developed that you could be come to uh, whatever, the, uh, this church or the, for the Lord, for that matter, and that you could go and he could send you, he could choose you and send you out because you're a person of character, because you love him and you want to rightly represent him, and that you're willing to, uh, you know, be used by him in whatever capacity he wants to use you, that you're not trying to create a name for yourself, but that you're just a simple servant of the Lord and you want to represent him well. That's the kind of people these guys were. There was no, uh, you know, self-elevation in their hearts. Well, I need to get myself a title so that I can represent. No, they, they, could, they were just people who were loving the Lord. And listen, what I know is the Bible, this is a principle of the Bible. Uh, when you live your life at the feet of Jesus, he exalts you. Well, when you're humble before the Lord and you serve the Lord in humility, the Lord lifts you up. The Lord uses you. The Bible says he, his eyes are going to and fro seeking loyal hearts that he might show himself strong. He's looking for people to use. But he wants to use people of character. The enemy wants to raise up people that don't have that kind of character and get them on the news and get them on TV. And those are the kind of people that generally make it up there. You know, and... and but God's looking for people that are people of integrity, people that love the Lord, people that are walking in the spirit of God, that are willing to be used by the Lord. That's the kind of people that he wants. Is, are you that kind of person this morning? Because he has a whole world to reach, but he needs people of character to do that. 
Paul and, uh, Paul and Judas, they were, or Judas and Silas, they were those kind of men. And it tells us here, there's a little bit of a, a difference in some of the translations. Um, Judas and Silas uh, were prophets and they encouraged the brothers and such there. Verse 33, and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. If you have the New King James or King James Version, there's a verse 34 in your, in your Bible. In my, in my version, the ESV, which uses a different translation than the New King James, King James, it doesn't have that verse in there. And as you know, I've been telling you this, I point these things out so that you understand, that was probably a note from a scribe. It wasn't in all the original, in the original text probably. It was probably just a note that somebody had made. And, si and here's what it would say. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. So that was verse 34 in some of your Bibles. Um, it's probably exactly what happened because we see in verse 36 through 41 that Silas is there uh, when Paul and Barnabas, who right after this end up having this division over John Mark, who bailed on them when they came to Gal uh, just south of Galatia. You recall that. We'll talk about that next week. But, you know, whether Silas was there or not, we don't, I don't know. But it doesn't change the context of the verses at all. But what we know is that Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch and they ministered to the saints. That was their hub. And they just began to love the Lord and they began to... Can you imagine how much more the gospel of grace would have just been received in Antioch now that they had confirmation from the council in Jerusalem? Hey, this is the right gospel. This is the right message. I wish our world was looking for the right message. I wish people were seeking the right message and they wanted to know that. These, these people, you know, at least Paul and Barnabas were sent on their behalf to make sure, hey, is this the right message? And it was the right message. The message of the Bible, of the New Testament, is a message of grace, folks. It's the gospel of grace. If it's not the gospel of grace, we're all in big trouble but it is the gospel of grace. Are you struggling with grace today? Is grace something that you are willing, re, willingly receive or is it something that you struggle with and you feel like you need to help God uh, you know, with your salvation or whatever it is, your Christianity? Here's what I know is it, everything boils down to one word and it's called surrender. If you'll surrender to the Lord, the grace of God will be elevated in your life. You'll be able to really fully receive it. But until we fully surrender to the Lord and say, God, I got nothing to contribute. I've got nothing. I can't do a single thing. You've done it all. When Jesus said that on the cross, it is finished. He really meant it. He wasn't joking. He paid the price. You don't have to do anything else. He's done it for you. So if you're here today struggling with grace and you feel like, man, I have to do these things in order to be saved, then I want to bring you back to the very basic thing, the gospel of grace. Jesus paid the price. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the lamb. You don't have to look anywhere else, folks. It's been done for you. Relating to salvation. And, you know, in our sanctification, we also live by grace. We're called to receive the grace of God. If you fail, guess what? Receive the grace of God. Get back up, repent, and move forward. Don't let it hinder you. Don't stop walking 
in the grace of God and then be extenders of grace to each other and to people outside. Be gracious people. God's gracious with you. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.